We really all need to work together on all fronts. So the producers, the distributors, regulators, the food service industry, consumers, to build that trust and confidence in this really remarkable food. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. So as part of our Christmas series, it's a pleasure to introduce Julie Cube, who's co-founder of the Oyster Master Guild, um, an oyster sommelier and all-round good gal oyster lover. Julie, good morning. Hi, it's so nice to be here. So last time we spoke, you were about to embark on this adventure of developing the Oyster Master Guild. How's 2023 seen you through that process? Oh gosh, it's been a whirlwind in all the great forms. Uh, so we, my co-founder Patrick McMurray and I officially launched Oyster Master Guild in August of this year, but it's really been many, many years in the making as we have had many conversations about it. And it's been going really well. So we launched with a level one Oyster Appreciation Fundamentals course. We took over 100 students from 11 countries through level one. And so far, 41 of them have become certified Oyster ambassadors. That's fantastic. Take us through that process a bit, Julie, because it's a really exciting program. And it's, and it's uh, I th- from what I've seen, it's, it's the only one in the world. It, I think it is at this scale. And, you know, the, the reason why Patrick and I decided to embark on this really uh, a passion project is because when we present oysters um, to guests, to customers, to friends, I think we realized that we had all these amazing stories about the oysters and how they're grown from the farms. And we really see them being kind of massacred (laughs) at the last step in restaurants. So the intention originally for uh, Oyster Master Guild, OMG, if you will, um, was to help train and educate and then certify restaurant professionals. That said, I think there was a a good consumer audience that was interested in learning more about oysters as well. So we decided to develop a four-tiered educational program, starting with the level one and working our way to oyster mastery and level four. Uh, Oyster um, level one is a course that is comprised of six modules, each module being about 80 minutes long. And our inaugural course, we took them through every Monday at noon. Uh, People really liked tuning in virtually and then being part of a class when we go through our lectures. And we also were able to incorporate kind of a virtual but shared tasting experience with one of our distribution partners. So the vision will be to continue to build on top of that fundamental knowledge about oyster appreciation We just opened early registration for level two and then kind of building the curriculum into three and four where we really get into the business of bivalves and adding in specializations for different regions of oyster production, um, as well as even getting down to specific producers and their portfolios. It's a fantastic initiative and I'm sure that it will be highly successful. How are you feeling about it six months in? Pretty good. Um, it's been a lot of work, the two of us. So I actually uh, officially quit my corporate job to work on this uh, full time because I realized it, it was just quite a bit too much to do on the side of my other um, career. And I think we've been really encouraged to uh, get the receptivity and excitement that we've had. 
And, and I think there's just been a lot of opportunities to see collaborations with different trade associations, uh, restaurant groups, even culinary schools in our future. That's, it's absolutely fantastic, Julie. Now, your love and experience and involvement in oysters isn't just the last six months, of course. And you, know, you and I have had many chats over the years over a plate of oysters and, and shared experiences. So part of this exercise today is to discuss with you what you've been seeing in 2023 in terms of trends around the world in the oyster area. Sure. Yeah, let's dig into it. So what are, like, what are you seeing? I mean, you know, from, from, from where I sit, there's been this sort of renaissance of appreciation for, for how special oysters are. And, and we've seen the sort of all-you-can-eat oyster buffets sort of disappear and now oysters being offered by the each. Uh, and, and offered mm-hmm. at quite a premium. Is, are you seeing that in other parts of the world as well? Yes, absolutely. Now, I think that um, different countries definitely have their own culture. Having having spent half of 2023 living in Spain, I actually got to experience seafood and oyster culture completely different from what I see in the U.S. But I think when I'm looking at the globe as a whole, there are things that have emerged in 2023 that I feel like wasn't quite as developed in, in previous years, especially since 23 is really the year when we are, quote unquote, back to normal from the pandemic. Um, I actually see a lot of oyster shuckers starting to be treated as like elite special forces at events. So they are the special force you bring in to enhance your weddings, your corporate events, your festivals and concerts. And then they're actually added on to bars and breweries to provide that additional experience. So that is one thing that I've definitely seen pop up quite a lot in the North American market. The other is uh, on the producer side, small producers are also looking at other ways to um, grow their and expand their business model. I think they realize that at a scale, at a certain scale, they can't really make ends meet with just oyster farming. They have to add value to what they're doing. So they're also exploring catering and mobile raw bars, even going as far as building brick and mortar establishments, like going into food service and offering tours, merchandise, and direct to consumer sales. Yeah, that's really exciting to see that vertical integration, isn't it? To sort of get, and for oyster farmers in particular to almost be building that sort of level of recognition that you see with winemakers or vignerons. Yes, and it helps market their the value of their oysters even further. So not only are they bringing in a different revenue stream, but it's ultimately helping increase the price for their product. Absolutely. Now, would you say that that's coincided with the sort of rise in the number of brands, if you will, of oysters around the world? I would say so. I feel like I see a different name every week, <laughs> almost. It seems like uh, there's all these different brands and names popping up all the time. I largely think that that's also attributed to the fact that consumers love novelty. And so a lot of sellers really like to pitch new types of oysters, touting the different miroirs of all these different kinds, just offering something new to the consumer like every season. Um, whether or not they're actually differentiated uh, at the end of the day is mm, maybe on a case-by-case basis, but it definitely helps kind of get that initial intrigue into the, the sector. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And just getting back to the, some of those differences you've noticed uh, living in living in Europe to uh, living in Brooklyn, 
How would you describe the sort of general or the, the overarching difference in how consumers, you know, sort of approach oysters in Spain as they do in uh, in New York? So in Spain, there is a, an incredibly vibrant seafood culture that is generations old and. And really, Spain just knows how to live a good life. The Spaniards just know how to live. It's really remarkable. Their their appreciation of food and their access to good seafood is unparalleled. And so when you're talking about raw oyster and live oyster appreciation in Spain, and I was living in Madrid in the capital, there were only like there was only one like legit oyster bar in the city that I can remember that I would actually belly up to and enjoy, you know, six or seven varieties. Uh, just right before when we left, El Portito opened its second location. El Portito is the original OG raw bar concept that was established in Bilbao. And they opened a Madrid location and they touted 15 varieties. That is the only, like, those are the only two places that I know in the capital that has like such a robust oyster program. Whereas they have an abundance of all these other amazing shellfish and fin fish, but oysters really play still a small yet emerging role in their seafood culture. Go, going back to New York and in around the States, you know, our, our seafood consumption as a country is pathetically low compared to Spain, where, you know, it's only around 20 pounds per capita per year. And of the 80%, we only eat four different types of seafood. So the rest of it is kind of a hodgepodge of things. And oysters are considered more of a more of a specialty, like a craft beer or craft coffee. If you will, there is a niche community and a niche mindset around oysters, because there are so many different producers uh, along all, all of our coasts, that you can really gravitate to the individual stories, unlike in Spain, where the production and the markets are a bit you know, they're not really just talking to each other. There's not that many people doing it there. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So that, I like the analogy as well with the craft beer movement. I mean, are you seeing that there's the same sort of characters popping up in oysters where the bush ranger beard and the sleeve tattoo is predominant? <laughs> I would think so, yeah. So one of the things I also noticed is that oyster branding has become a bit more playful and a, li a bit more edgy, especially with the younger oyster producers and uh, service professionals, right? They're, they're really leveraging social media to tell this very distinct story that's about them and how they approach the topic. So you do get a little more attitude, you do get a bit more charisma um, and reaching these new audiences like never before. So I find that a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is, it absolutely is. And it's not just about the branding and the fun names, though, is it? I think, you know, globally, we've seen a real focus on the quality of oysters that are being farmed. Have you noticed that as well in the hemisphere? I think so for some producers. Uh, it, it really depends on the goal that they want to achieve. But I, I actually, through social, have recognized a lot of efforts from um, Appalachian oysters in Australia who are really touting this premium grade of product across a lot of different farms. In, in North America, you do have some oyster growers who have, I suppose, the resources and the, and the resilience, <laughs> if you will, to go after a quality over quantity story. You know, a lot of times it is a tension between how do you make ends meet and how do you keep your operation going 
versus how do you bring a premium quality par- product to market when you are just growing. And those two things are always seem to be at odds with each other for a farm of certain sizes. Now, larger farms, they definitely have established really premium uh markets. And of course, there are some names that pop out more so than others. There are, of course, other companies that are really massive, but they're in it for kind of the the commodity side of things, which is fine. I think you get the dynamic between both in, in one market. Tell us about the retail oyster scene, both in North America and in Europe, Julie Q. How, how are you seeing that? The retail market for live oysters in in the US is it is kind of specialized. It's very local. So you sort of gravitate to your specialty seafood marts, which are becoming, I feel like, more and more scarce because usually Americans like to eat out for their oysters. And the pandemic was an anomaly where everybody had to stay home and then shuck their own oysters and retail kind of direct to consumer sales grew there. However, I believe that this year was very weak for seafood retail in general. Um, and hopefully they bounce back from that. I think there are signs saying that that it will. Uh, but it's a different buying experience, right? I think the, the general American is very hesitant and a bit nervous about buying their own seafood um, and prep- preparing it at home. Comparing that to Europe, I think that oysters were always seen in the you know, like pescaderias that are in every neighborhood, but there was only one kind. And so even though you had maybe access to one oyster, um, you were probably picking up just a few of them, if at all, on your weekly seafood market trips. So again, I'm, I think that oysters in both situations might have been, from a retail standpoint, more of a specialty purchase than an everyday thing. Yeah, right. That's that's really interesting. I mean, we're at a bit of a crossroads here in Australia where still over 90% of oysters that are sold in retail are, are pre-shucked, which of course is the transistor mm. radio experience to the surround sound <laughs> reality of a freshly shucked oyster. So it's, uh, it, it's interesting down here. Now, th- I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, for 2023, do you have a standout oyster experience or experiences that you can share with us? Oh, gosh. Well... There's a lot. <laughs> I I had I was thinking about this and I I did so many cool oystery things in 2023. I think I have three three four-ish to share, if that's okay. Please. <laughs> so so one, the first one that I can think of was back in March when I had the opportunity to visit Diva Bay Oyster Farm and Fujera, which is part of the United Arab Emirates. And that was fantastic because who had like heard of an oyster farm in the Middle East? Well, they they have a farm there in Fujera Bay, and it is fantastic to see that production and understand how they were able to produce and scale so quickly. So they're, the company is about six years old, if not a little bit more, and they're doing 300000 to market a month, which is truly impressive for um, a company to do that in such a short amount of time. They also had a couple restaurants that I really enjoyed and just doing something really cool in the Dubai market, taking over a lot of market share from from, uh, established French (laughs) producers. And actually speaking of France, my other memorable standout experience was going to Monet Oleron 
you know, the, uh, the mecca of oysters that have been finished through the affinage process to develop their beautiful taste and textures within the clairs. So I went out there and toured with Adrien G and enjoyed traditional French seafood specialties with his whole family. And that was in June, just before leaving uh, uh, Spain. And that was really, really special. I had always wanted to go there and finally did and got to appreciate oyster culture at a completely different scale. And then finally, the last two was really getting to be a witness to two very competitive international oyster opening championships, the first being in Prince Edward Island, and then the second at the Worlds in Galway in Ireland. And, you know, if it's, it's amazing when you go see these international shucking competitions, like how intense the competitors are and methodolic methodical. <laughs> they are about the placement of their oysters, the, the placement of their hands and knives to create the best efficiency possible. Um, and also it was nice and Galway because it had been 10 years since I was there last and I got to meet Kath from uh, Naruma Oyster Festival there too. So that was quite special. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So Julie Q's Christmas table is going to have what in the, from the oyster world? Ooh. Oh gosh. So I mean, now, now being back in New York, right, this is really my f- most favorite time to enjoy our East Coast oysters because they're really just jumping right into the peak season right now, the Crassostrea virginica. So they get very firm and meaty and sweet. So I really gravitate to that because they're also local. Um, right before Christmas, my plan is to actually go out to Fisher's Island, uh, which is an island that's technically closer to Connecticut, but it's part of New York. Anyway, so there's a oyster <laughs> oyster farm there, and I'm going to pick them up personally and bring them back home to shuck for Christmas. But I also have my eye on a few specialty oysters like our Olympias and Kumamotos because they have been stellar this year. And there's a couple of farms that have just been posting about them on social. I'm like, well, you're going to get to me eventually, so we'll see. I one one thing that actually that I thought about is this is the one of the few times in the U.S. where you can actually enjoy a five species tasting, which I'm I'm sorry to say that you won't be able to find in Australia, but we have this rare seasonal treat to be able to procure all five species that are available to us in one plate. So maybe I'll endeavor to do that at some point too. That's amazing. That'd be incredible. And what about? Heading into 2024, what are your predictions for oyster, the oyster world going into 2024? You know, I I really love supporting the industry because you just get a combination of the best people, products, and places, right? It's really a passionate, innovative community of problem solvers who are solving food and food problems, climate problems, environment problems, and making really delicious uh, products at the same time. However, it's very apparent that this industry is incredibly sensitive to external forces such as climate change, transportation, distribution costs, and especially public perception to food safety for live oysters. And in order for this business to thrive, I think a lot of things have to go right. So for me, you know, I believe that advancing oyster appreciation by hammering home product and service value through executing great experiences consistently across the board is really critical to building that reputation that the industry depends on to grow. So 
we really all need to work together on all fronts. So the producers, the distributors, regulators, the food service industry, consumers to build that trust and confidence in this really remarkable food. And hopefully, you know, through Oyster Master Guilds, we're able to establish that common foundation and the shared lexicon that you and I have talked about across oyster educators around the world. And so my hope is to be able to build that bridge in 2024 between our initial efforts in North America and people who are doing like-minded work in Europe, Asia, and Oceania. Fantastic. So just tell us where we can find you at the Oyster Master Guild. Well, it's very easy. So our website is oystermasterguild.com. We're on Instagram as well as Oyster Master Guild. And I think those are the two platforms that we are currently the most active on. <laughs> fantastic. Well, Julie, it's been, as always, a fantastic time to catch up with you. I hope that we can uh, we can sort of get together in the, in the near future to share some bivalves and banter. And may your oysters be local and champagne French this season. Merry Christmas, Julie Q. Thank you. Happy holidays. Such a pleasure to be here. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtails Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.